the key is to find those strategies that work for you. And it is trial and error. You can try putting alerts on your phone calendar like I do, but that may not work for you. You can try writing down things on sticky notes and sticking them all over your computer monitor and your bathroom mirror and your wall. And you may disregard all of those sticky notes and what's in front of your eyes and you may not see it. It's through trial and error of different strategies you got to find what works for you. And it may have to be a combination of things. It's also important to put systems in place that help kind of modify your environment. So if you know that you work best early in the morning, you should wake up and start your day earlier and even ask your boss if you can make your work hours from 7.30 to 4 instead of 9 to 5 or whatever it may be. Find what works for you. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 167 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I have had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. And you know what? My guest today is no exception, of course. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the backstory um, as far as how we ended up here. So since last August, I have been trying desperately to write a book proposal, but I haven't actually been writing it that long because... (laughs) I basically ghosted my wonderful editor, not really ghosted her, but I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. I would just kind of check in and say, oh, sorry, haven't gotten to it. This went on for five months. It really was hell for me. You know, in a book proposal, you have to write the chapters and what I discovered, chapter summaries. And what I discovered is I can't write a chapter summary if I haven't written a chapter. So I ended up writing, I think, 200 pages of this book when I was supposed to actually be writing the chapter summaries. And while I was writing all this, I realized that I have struggled with writing my entire life. And it's weird because I actually consider myself a very strong writer, but it's lost on me how I can be a strong writer but hate to write so much. I think of myself as, I think it was Dorothy Parker who said, I hate writing, but I love having written. And that sentence actually captures exactly how I feel about writing. So last month, I decided that I was going to get to the bottom of this. You know, my ADHD son was recently diagnosed with dyslexia. So I thought, well, it's genetic, so maybe he got it from me. So I decided to get me some educational testing. And as we got closer, I started to think, well, no, it's probably not dyslexia. It's probably dyscalculia. Well, lo and behold, I learned that as a matter of fact, I have no learning disability that we know of. In fact, 
my working memory, which I always talk about how poor it is, is actually quite strong. So I likely am also not suffering from early onset dementia, that maybe it's just ADHD. And so initially I was like, damn, I wanted a name for it, right? I wanted to be able to explain why I struggled so much with writing. But since then, it has been so incredibly freeing because I'm much less likely to dismiss something with, oh, that's my ADHD, or maybe it's dyslexia or dyscalculia or my poor ADHD working memory. Now, I'm much more inclined to tell myself, "Uh, Tracy, your brain is plenty smart. Your brain is plenty functional. Just figure it out. And I love that I also wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia because then I would have thought, oh, that's the company that both my son and I went to and they diagnose everyone with dyslexia or ADHD or whatever. So anyway, I went to the same educational testing company that Marcus went to called Diagnostic Learning Services. I love them. But instead of working with Lori Peterson, who we've had on this podcast um, twice now, I worked with Lori's partner, Abby. And we got to talking after it was all over, and she shared with me that she had ADHD, and she also shared her own interesting story about ADHD and her struggles with writing and higher education. So I thought that her story might help you, our listeners. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Dr. Abby Weinstein. So Dr. Dr. Weinstein is the Director of Assessment for Diagnostic Learning Services. She has over 22 years of experience in education as an ABA home therapist, a teacher, and for the last 17 years, she has worked as an educational diagnostician, where she tests for a variety of disabilities and develops individualized education plans. We know them as IEPs. She has experience in both the private and the public education sectors. Abby earned her bachelor's degree in human development with an emphasis in developmental disabilities from the University of Kansas. She went on to earn her master's degree in special education with educational diagnostician certification from Texas Women's University and her PhD in special education with a minor in educational leadership also from Texas Women's University. Dr. Weinstein is a member of the Council for Exceptional Children, Texas Educational Diagnostician Association, North Texas CHAD, and Council for Learning Disabilities. In her free time, she loves to take walks, read, and play with her dog, Lenny, who is a lab mix. Phew, Abby, did I get all of that right? I think you did. You summed it up well. Thank you. Wonderful. So can we start, because we always start this way, with talking about your ADHD diagnoses first? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I actually was not diagnosed formally until my late 30s. I think I was about 36 years old when I was formally diagnosed with ADHD. But as I went through graduate school and learning more about abnormal psychology and psychology and just learning about different disabilities, I got to learn a lot about ADHD. And I really self-diagnosed myself probably at the age of mm, 22, 23 years old. Because looking back in hindsight, I struggled ever since early childhood. I had a lot of ADHD symptoms. I was definitely a very, very impulsive child. I didn't think before I acted. I didn't think before I spoke. I I talked excessively. I was the child that was moved to every location in the classroom, but I still found somebody to talk to. Even, you know, they would put they would put me by the the snotty nosed kid in the corner and I would end up befriending them and and talking to them. And I found a million things to do other than focusing on my work and doing my work. I also, as a teenager, you know, really I didn't think about the consequences of my actions. My impulsivity got the best of me. I, I I made a lot of poor choices, got into trouble, caused a ton of gray hair that's on my parents' head to this day. I'm probably the cause of most of it. So I, I struggled. And school was not my my cup of tea. I, I really struggled with focus and concentration, with work completion. One of my biggest 
struggles was task initiation, getting started on tasks. I was just, and I've always been this big procrastinator. I, I wait to the last minute to do things. And then I, I do it at the last minute and I learned to do it well over time. But when I was in middle school and high school, I didn't do it well. I, I did kind of a, a half a double S half, you know. <laughs> oh, you can say that here. Smart ass oh, women, smart right? Smart ass women. Yeah, I did a half ass job. When I graduated high school and went off to college, I really thought I was well prepared for college and I was going to be really successful. And I struggled tremendously my freshman year. You know, I had all of the structure removed. I didn't have my parents mm. around. I had this new sense of freedom that I had been desiring for so long. I didn't go to class. I didn't get my assignments done. I traveled the nation. <laughs> I, I, I did whatever I felt like doing whenever I wanted to, and I didn't think steps ahead. So it, it did cause me a lot of problem problems. I actually went from being on monitored probation and almost flunking out of school to a year later making A's and B's. And then as you heard, I went on and actually got my master's and my PhD. So I, I feel like I am a success story, but I really struggled with, um, as I got older and had these ADHD symptoms that were unmanaged, I developed a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression. And I beat myself up and had a lot of negative self-talk. And so I started seeing a psychiatrist mostly for anxiety and depressive symptoms. And that's what we were treating. And that's what so I was. Abby? Yes. So, okay. So, okay. Let's back up one second. So okay. you said you went from monitored probation to getting straight A's. When yep. did that happen? Like, what was that shift about? So I'll tell you really, I think what made the biggest impact for me was when I came home for summer break after my freshman year of college, my undergraduate, and I was on monitored probation because my GPA was so low and I was almost bailing out. My father said to me, you'll be lucky if you are going to work at McDonald's someday. Oh, and if you flunk out of school, I will no longer pay for anything ever again, and you will not get another opportunity to have an educational career. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me. And I, I was goal oriented in a sense, and I, I had goals and aspirations for my future. So I was able to think that far ahead in that I knew I wanted more for myself. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to go on and do great things. So that my dad's comment about not even, I'd be lucky working at McDonald's and the fact that he wouldn't pay for anything and I wouldn't get any more educational opportunities. That was a big turning point for me. And I went back to school the next year in the fall and I started to find strategies to balance my, my play life and my school life. I still wanted to be able to have fun and party and travel. I, I like to go see the Grateful Dead. And so I would travel to go see the Grateful Dead in concert, <laughs> which um, is a little crazy that I did drove halfway across the country on a whim, drove straight through all the way from Lawrence, Kansas to Phoenix, Arizona um, with a girlfriend of mine and was there for two days and got in the car and drove back in time, made it back for class on a Monday morning, a 9 a.m. class. But yeah, that was the turning point. And so I started to take school a little more seriously. I started going to classes, which that in and of itself created a, a lot more success for me and enabled me to be on top of what was going on in my courses. And I also started to develop coping strategies. And I learned that I couldn't study in my dorm room or even in the lounge of my dorm room where there was a million distractions going on. I started going to coffee shops and mm. I found a little hole in the wall coffee shop that had this basement area that was, you know, low lit, not a lot of noise, minimal distractions. And that's when I started to make A's and B's. I think it was also helpful that 
I started to take courses that were more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because after freshman year, you get a lot of those basics out of the way, basic English, basic math, basic, you know, history courses. And then I got to start choosing courses that were interesting to me. And as most of you guys probably know, with the ADHD brain, we're much more engaged and focused and can remember and retain information when it's interesting to us and more meaningful. So I think that was also something that became very helpful and led me to more success. Now, it was really hard to bring up a low GPA. Even getting A's, it took a very long time to bring up that GPA. And and I still didn't graduate with a very high GPA, even after making A's and B's for the next three years. But that's what um, I, I did. And when I graduated college, I actually had no intention of going on to graduate school. I just thought, I'm done with school. I'm not a school person. I'm, I'm going to go work in the real world, get a job, and, and that will be that. And so what so, happened? So I actually started teaching. Well, before I started teaching, I got back, I moved back to Texas and I decided I wasn't quite ready for the quote unquote real world and an adult job, but I was doing ABA home therapy, which I started in Kansas while I was still in school. The end of my degree program, I had a practicum where I was doing applied behavior analysis therapy for children with autism in their Mm -hmm. homes. Mm -hmm. So I moved back to Texas. I got a job doing that here in Texas, and I did it for about six months. And then that impulsive side of me came out again where I thought, no, this is too stable. This is too boring. I'm not ready for this real nine to five world and this real job. And I went to be a waitress at a Mexican restaurant here in Dallas. I'm sure your dad loved that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My parents were thrilled to know that they had just paid a fortune for me to get a bachelor's degree. I struggled through school. I made it out. And then I became a waitress. And waitressing was fun. You know, I there was a lot of fun things to do. You got to move around. It is. It really is. Yeah. To remember. Oh, It is very hard and there's a lot to remember and there's a lot of multitasking going on. Um, I had to write everything down. I had to have assistance. You know, luckily the the restaurant I worked at, you had very small sections. So you would only have maybe four tables, but it was a very difficult job. In fact, so difficult that after about mm, eight months of doing that, waiting tables, I decided to switch to being a hostess. I I didn't want the the stress and the responsibility that came with being the server or the the waitress. So I thought, oh, I still like working in this restaurant and I like the hours. So I'm going to be a hostess here. So then I became a hostess and you know, it was fun and the environment, a lot of people that are not in the real world, so to speak, were in the restaurant industry, the customer service industry. And we would go out to the bars afterwards and the nightclubs. And then you got to sleep late and you didn't have to be at work until 10 or 11 the next day. And I was enjoying that lifestyle. It was very similar to my lifestyle I was living in college without the the schoolwork. So I was having fun. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then it didn't last long. And I did start to have that desire to go work with kids. I definitely wanted to work with children with autism. And I found a private school in Dallas that really liked my background with my human development and emphasis in developmental disabilities degree and my experience in doing applied behavior analysis. So I started teaching at a private school that was geared towards students with severe developmental disabilities, severe learning disabilities, and mental health disabilities. And that's what got me into teaching, really. I loved it so much and enjoyed it. It was very rewarding, still very challenging, very difficult. But I also, I burnt out really quickly too. I lasted four years at that job before I was like, I want to go work with quote unquote typical children. 
I want to mm-hmm. see what it's like. I, I thought it would be easier, you know, working with typically developing children. Yeah. So every couple of years, every about three or four years, I change schools, change jobs, which I realize now is is part of my ADHD brain that I get bored and I want change and I want some diversity and and I don't want the the status quo and and so I would look for different environments or I would get you know to the point where I felt like I'm not getting as much reward out of this job as I thought that I was going to get or I'm not making as much progress with these children as I want to see so I'm going to try something different. So I did teaching for several years. It wasn't until, um, let's see, I graduated my undergrad in 1998. It wasn't until 2006 that I decided, you know, I think I want to go back to school and get my master's degree. I had been teaching for a long time. And like I said, I went from working with children with special needs to a school that was just a private school that was geared towards typically developing children. Well, I learned really quickly that whether diagnosed or undiagnosed, there are special learners in every classroom. Yes. And there are kids that learn differently and they need differentiation and they need to be taught in many different ways. And it sparked this desire in me to try to figure out more about the brain and the learning processes and why certain children struggle with learning to read or learning to write or learning to do math. And so that drove me to my master's program with my goal becoming as becoming an educational diagnostician. You had to have your master's degree in special education And then the certification as an educational diagnostician added an additional 18 hours onto my master's program. So I started my master's program. And again, I was taking courses that were interesting to me and they were meaningful. And I was starting to learn more about child development and the brain and processing and intellectual abilities and learning disabilities and all these different types of tests that can help you learn how the brain is functioning. And so I was intrigued. And so I was making straight A's. And so I was excited. I actually became nerdy in my mind in that once I got those first couple A's, I was determined to always get A's. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. I found ways to make sure that I was able to get my assignments done and to get them done well. Now, I still procrastinated and I waited to the last minute to do things, but I did them very well. So I thought, well, I just work better under pressure is what I thought. I would stay up till two, three, four in the morning writing papers, studying for tests, I waited to the day before or two days before, but I was successful and I was doing well. So it was working for me. I also had to learn strategies such as saying no. (laughs) (laughs) I had to start to really develop a lot of self-discipline and say no to friends that were, you know, pulling me towards, let's go to this party, let's go to this concert. And so I had to grow and, and really quickly develop some self-discipline and some control and start thinking more than two minutes, five minutes ahead and start thinking about consequences of my actions. And so that's when I really turned things around was during my master's program. And I graduated my master's program with a 4.0, which is insane. I wish to the, to this day that I could call like my high school advisors and principals and tell them that I ended up as a good student. I never knew I could be a good student, but I really was. But it it was hard. So your school, so your high school, were you just kind of labeled as this problem kid? I really was. I, I, I really was Tracy. I was in trouble all of the time. I went to a huge high school and In fact, my graduating class was about 1,400 students. 
And there was several principles we had, we were divided into houses and my house principal knew me better than most of my teachers because I was in the principal's office a lot. I got in trouble a lot. I got, I skipped school a lot too. So I missed a lot of important educational time and instruction. I eventually got caught for all the skipping school and had to stay at school, got my off-campus lunch taken away. But I was a troublemaker. And and I'm sure that when they called my parents all the time because I was getting in trouble, they they thought that I was going to go on to to be a high school dropout or to do nothing productive with my life after high school because I was getting into trouble, making poor choices, and I was not a good student. I was, I, I, and I was okay with just getting by. As long as I wasn't failing, I was okay with D's and C's. I just wanted to pass. Did you think you weren't smart? I did. I really did. I didn't think I was smart. I really did not think that I was capable of doing the work. I certainly didn't think I was capable of earning A's or B's. So I really, I, I had a lot of negative self-talk. I thought I was lazy. I thought I was mm-hmm. dumb. I thought I was, you know, just a, a ball of mess. I thought I was going to go on to, I didn't know what was going to be with my future. I really didn't know what, what it would hold for me because I wasn't a student. I didn't think I'd be able to be successful in college. I knew I wanted to go to college. And that was something that my parents always instilled in me. So I think I, looking back, I'm not sure if for a while, I, if I really, really wanted to go or if that was just the expectation. So you you graduate high school and you go to college. So that was the, the goal was I had to go to college. I'm not sure where the turning point happened that it was I wanted to be in college. I think it was maybe after halfway through my freshman year or into my sophomore year. But my parents always said, you go to college, you will go to college. That is what you do after you graduate high school. But I didn't think I was going to be capable of doing it. I even thought about, you know, maybe I'll just go get a real estate license and be a real estate Mm -hmm. broker. or Maybe I'll go to cosmetology school and learn how to do makeup and hair and nails. And so I, I already had thought of other options. Did you have uh, siblings at home? I did. I I have an older sibling who's four years older than me, and he was the opposite of me. He was a good student, Mm -hmm. and that that made it hard, too, and and that made it even harder on my parents. They didn't know what to do with me, and they thought something was seriously wrong with me because I wasn't a good student. I made poor choices. I engaged in, you know, dangerous, risky behaviors. I got caught sneaking out of the house. I got caught skipping school. I got caught doing everything, which is the the bad thing and the good thing. The double-edged sword is I wasn't smart enough to not get caught. Now, my brother did do some, some stupid things, but he didn't get caught. He was a little bit smarter at that, but he was a good student. He had good friends. He had good behavior. Mm -hmm. He didn't get in trouble. So my parents, they sent me to every therapist in town trying to figure out what was wrong with me. So you mentioned that um, you struggled struggled at the time. You were struggling with anxiety and depression. When, When did that happen? They're sending you to therapists. And are the therapists diagnosing you with anxiety and depression? They are diagnosing me with anxiety and depression. Hmm. However, I am not following through with taking medication. I wasn't a good therapy patient because I was this negative person that I became angry. I don't know. I I guess I was angry at the world for why things were so difficult for me. So I would sit in therapy and not say anything. I would purposely sit there in silence with my arms crossed and and say, I'm not going to say anything to them because I was afraid First of all, they were going to tell my parents everything I said, Mm -hmm. but I also, I didn't trust them, but I also didn't think I needed to be there. You know, I didn't think there was something wrong with me. I thought it was all my parents and the world around me and my environment. And I blamed blamed it on everything else. In truth, it kind of was, right? It was. Exactly. It really was. You were right. Yep. 
and and really i didn't the until the anxiety got bad enough that i it caused physical symptoms like sweating and stomach aches and sicknesses and where my heart would race and i couldn't breathe and i'd have anxiety attacks mm-hmm. It wasn't until then that I started taking the anxiety medication, and that mm-hmm. was probably halfway through my undergraduate career, maybe when I was about 20 years old. And I started taking antidepressants at the time, too, and mm-hmm. it it helped balance me. It really did help my mood. I wasn't quite as angry. I wasn't lashing mm-hmm. out. I wasn't you know, um, I was more stable for sure, but I still had all these ADHD symptoms that I was struggling with. I had impulsivity. I struggled with focus, with concentration. I struggled with, with remembering tasks, remembering what I needed to do. I definitely still was a procrastinator and waited to the last minute to do everything. Um, and I, I didn't think before I acted or think before I spoke. I, I was very impulsive. I was also well, very talkative still. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what? And I don't blame you for being oppositional. I would have been oppositional too, right? Right. You knew that there was something else and the adults weren't helping you figure out what the something else was. No, they weren't. So, I'm curious. So once you got that 4.0, you're going through your master's, you're doing so well. What are your parents saying then? Oh my goodness. They were so proud of me. They, they actually ah. were so proud. They were shocked. My, my dad was shocked. My mom was more like, I knew you could do it. I knew you were capable. Mm. I knew you were smart. Mm. Um, whereas my dad, who was an attorney before he passed away he with a PhD who was an avid, avid reader and just a brilliant, brilliant man. I think he really doubted that I was smart and doubted that I was going to be capable of getting through college. So he was surprised and, and just really in awe. Um, so I, you know, was rewarded. They bought me a new car and then they said, you know, if you want to continue on with your education, we'll pay for it. And so that was the way they rewarded me and praised me and reinforced my behavior. Mm. So was he alive to see you get a PhD? He was not, unfortunately, but he he saw me through my master's program and he knew I wanted to go on and get my PhD. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I walked across that stage and they handed me that degree and they called me Dr. Weinstein for the first time, I got chills on my body and I felt my dad's presence in the room. So I know that he was looking down on me with beaming, beaming with pride and joy and all of his friends have re- have reached out and said how proud of him, how proud of me he would have been and my mom feels the same way so he didn't get to see me get that degree but he did he knows that i did that and i think that he is very proud of me and my mom is very proud of me and to this day she still says i wish you could call mrs ezel which was my high school principal my house principal and tell her how you turned out because I really think they all doubted that I would turn out to be okay, quote unquote, okay. And then, you know, I mean, going on back for more school, you know, you would think that would be torturous for someone who struggled with school the first time around and then with all the ADHD symptoms. But, you know, I just, I really had to learn strategies on my own, like, using sticky notes and organizational tools and to-do lists. And I've bought every journal that's ever been made and every agenda book that's ever been made. Now, some of them were effective and some of them weren't, but really what's been most effective for me has been technology. On my phone, I've got reminders. I put everything on my calendar with alerts and I have to have two alerts because yep. the first alert goes off and I still might forget about it or I get distracted by something else. So then I have a second alert 15 minutes later to remind me to do things. And I have a separate one, a different sound for personal alerts versus professional work-related alerts. So I've really started to use technology 
I use uh, something called to-do list and daily reminders also. And with my to-do list, I learned at some point someone taught me the benefit of not just making to-do lists, but of prioritizing those to-do lists every day. Because as you know, we can make a to-do list, have a very, very busy day where we're going, going, going nonstop and have accomplished nothing on the to-do list. (laughs) Exactly. Or only one thing on the to-do list, which could be discouraging. So then I start over the next day and I make that to-do list again and I have to copy over what was on it from the day before that didn't get accomplished. But now I prioritize that to-do list. I ABC it. So A's are the top priorities that I have to do them today immediately. B's are, I would like to do it today, but it's okay if I put it off till tomorrow. And then C, meaning I want to do it in the near future and it needs to get done. Mm. So I learned to prioritize my to-do list and using those alerts on my phone. But I also still, Tracy, my desk is covered with sticky notes. (laughs) Mine too. Whoever invented sticky notes, props to them, man. They're, they're, they they made had ADHD. They had ADHD. So I have to-do lists all over with things that I need to do. So I have to, I've learned, I have to write things down. Yeah. And you've, you've talked about that before too, that you have to write things down in order to be able to remember them and retain them. Absolutely. So, if it's not written down, who knows if it, you know. Exactly. Ever gets attended to. And let me tell you too, when I was going through my PhD program, I was working full time as a diagnostician in the public schools. And I was working probably about 50 to 60 hours a week. And my job was high stress with a lot of demands, multitasking all day long. I had a million to-do lists. I had a million spreadsheets and I had a paper calendar my electronic calendar, and I was in school at the same time. I was taking two classes a semester. So I really had a lot to balance. And still to this day, I'm not really sure how I managed to get through it. I will say um, it was helpful that I finally was formally diagnosed with ADHD and started taking ADHD medication. And And that was really... When I started taking ADHD medication and really managing those ADHD symptoms and getting those ADHD symptoms under control was a big pivot point for me because one, my anxiety greatly reduced, my depressive symptoms greatly reduced, and I was able to balance all of the things that I need to balance between my work world and my school world. And I I did it. And Granted, it it took me six years, which is a really long time, but I did it. And once I got halfway through blood, sweat, and literal tears, I was determined to finish. And that determination was the drive I needed. And I also wanted to, for my dad up in heaven, you know, I said, I want him to see that I can get through and get my PhD, like I said, I was going to, but I was determined, you know, once I, once I saw that I was capable of doing the work and getting through it, I wasn't turning back, especially after, you know, spending all those endless hours writing papers and reading research, I was going to get to the dissertation phase and finish. And they say, really, I, I don't know exactly the percentage. I, it could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I think it's only, only about 20% of candidates that start a PhD program actually finish the program and get through, through the whole dissertation process and graduate with their PhD. It might even be less than that. Wow. So I think we had talked about this before that, um, Dr. Thomas Brown, he did research on gifted college students at Yale because mm-hmm. he noticed that gifted ADHD students, they would fall off the rails when, when the demands exceeded their ability to compensate. And often that would happen with the dissertation. And I know mm-hmm. that Dr. Kathleen Nadeau has said many times that she believes that those who haven't completed their dissertations, they're likely ADHD. And I know in our big Facebook group, this topic comes up all the time where 
these uh, PhD candidates, they are totally stuck at the dissertation level and cannot move beyond it. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, I know this was difficult for you, but I'm curious to know what your strategies were around that to actually getting it done. Getting it done. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think most people get stuck. They get through the coursework and then they sit down and they think now the structure has been removed and I have to completely self-discipline myself to read and write because the dissertation process is reading research and literature in your field and writing, constantly reading, writing. I was reading about 18 to 20 hours per week of research and other people's research in my field, on my topic, literature reviews. So my workarounds, I think I would have to say I would schedule reading time. So I knew I was working till this, till, you know, I I wouldn't get home from work until maybe five o'clock. I would actually have to schedule dinner time, schedule the walk, walking my dog time. Then I had to schedule reading time and say, okay, from eight to nine 30, I'm strictly reading. And then from nine 30 to 10 30, I'm going to write about what I just read. So I had to become very, very structured. And I also had to have that discipline where I had to say no to a lot of social events, social gatherings, um, even family affairs and family functions, I had to say no to a lot of things because nights and weekends had to be devoted to my dissertation because I was working Monday through Friday, you know, 7.30 to 5.30 or whatever time it was. So I found it really beneficial to actually schedule my day in 30 minute to one hour intervals from the time I got home from work until the time I went to bed. Even on the weekends, I had a hard time getting up and getting going. Um, I would say 20 more minutes and I'm going to get up and start working. 30 more minutes, 20 more minutes, 15 more minutes. So I had to use some resources. I found a friend and a mentor that would call me and would motivate me to get up and get writing and reading. So she would say, okay, in 20 minutes, you have to get up and get started on your work. So she would call me 20 minutes later. So she would pressure me and that pressure, I didn't want to disappoint her and didn't want to disappoint myself. So that was one resource having you know, really using my support network. My mom would just say, oh, you can do it. You'll do it. You can do it. She always just wanted to be the cheerleader. I needed someone to really light the spark under my bottom and be hard Mm -hmm. on me and say, get off your ass, get up, go do it. You will be so much happier if you can do it and get it done. I also started to implement a reward system for myself in that I know, you know, some principles of behavior modification, you know, the more you reward a behavior and praise a behavior, the more likely you are to increase the chance of that behavior occurring more. So I started thinking, okay, I'm going to start rewarding my behavior. So if I get through these two research articles, I'm going to reward myself with a latte from Starbucks. And then if I get through another three articles, I'm going to reward myself with an hour of watching Netflix or an hour of reading something unrelated to school, just pleasure reading or a magazine. And then I also gave myself big rewards at the end of the weekend. Like I'm going to take myself for a manicure and a pedicure if I get this research paper written this weekend. And so that was something that was really, really helpful for me so that Now I was working towards my reward and saying, you didn't earn that. You don't get to have TV time right now, Abby, or you don't get to go for a manicure because you didn't earn it until you get done with what you scheduled on your calendar that you needed to get done. So that was a, that was a big strategy that worked for me. I also have, I hung a a bright neon yellow sticky note on the wall above my TV in the living room. So my space in my house where I live and spend most of my time is in the living room on the couch. 
Um, I eat on the couch. I do work on the couch. I read on the couch. I watch TV on the couch. So in my living room on the wall above the TV was a bright neon sticky note. And that was a visual prompt, so to speak, or a visual reminder that, hey, you've got more important shit to do. Get off your bottom and go do it. And so every time I was sitting on the couch just saying 15 more minutes, 15 more minutes, if I looked up and I saw that bright neon yellow sticky note, I would get up and say, okay, it's time to get up and go do my work. And so I would do that. I also had to implement breaks. I know my brain and my attention and focus, even with my medication, I couldn't sustain my focus and concentration for more than two hours without taking a break. So I would set timers on my phone and implement breaks. So every two hours, I would allow myself, you know, a 10 minute break, walk around, move around, go outside, get some fresh air, make a phone call, do whatever I needed to do. So those visual prompts, the alerts on my phone, putting everything on a calendar, scheduling every minute. I also had a great advisor that was provided to me through my school program. And I told her that I needed short-term benchmarks. I couldn't just, she couldn't say, okay, I want you to write chapter one of your dissertation and give it to me when you're finished. I needed her to say, I need a rough draft of chapter one by this date. And so that was really helpful too, to have these, these, these goals in mind, these set in stone dates. So now I was being held accountable to someone else. Again, besides my friend who was my support network and one of my resources to get me up and get me going, my mentor and advisor, who was also my dissertation committee chairperson, she's established short-term benchmarks for me and said, okay, I need three paragraphs of chapter one by the end of the week. And then she would give me revisions that needed to be done and say, okay, I need your revisions by the end of end of workday next Wednesday. So that's how I worked best. And she worked well with me on that and kept giving me different short-term benchmarks to achieve. And so that was really, really beneficial. Um, I think my medication helped tremendously as well, too. Like I said, you know, I finally was managing those ADHD symptoms and I could sustain focus and concentration. I could avoid distractions. I also knew that I couldn't study at home and I couldn't read at home. So I found my favorite Starbucks and I lived at Starbucks. Do you think you could have done it without the uh, medication? You know, probably not. I, mm -hmm. I, I highly doubt it. I don't think, I think that I would have started it. I don't think I would have finished it. Yeah. I think I would probably still be in the process if it wasn't for my medication. Yeah. The other thing is since what I continuously hear from, you know, those who are stuck in this dissertation phase is the problem that there is no structure that you've got to create your own structure Mm -hmm. Why don't universities do a better job of creating structure around the dissertation and more than just, you know, once a week getting together with your advisor where literally mm -hmm. there's like classes built around it? Well, you know, that's a really good point. And that is something that's a good area of research, actually. I was, I'm sure someone is doing some research out there on that. But you're right, Tracy. I don't know why these big universities that have huge PhD programs with tons of candidates, why they don't build more structure into the dissertation process. Now, I do know I had a friend that did um, a PhD program through an online university where they meshed the coursework and the dissertation together. So you would do a course or two, and then you would start working on literature reviews and writing your literature review, which is one of the chapters of your dissertation. Then you would do more coursework and then you would do some actual field research and collecting data. So they did this university that she went to, but they did build more structure into that. I think they realized that that is the struggle for most 
PhD candidates that can't get through the dissertation process is that that lack of structure being removed or that structure being removed makes it so hard to self-discipline yourself and to put timelines in place. So I don't know why they don't. They, they really should build in a cohort a group that gets together, that meets more often, right? A community reviewing each other's work, meeting at the library in one of those reserved rooms and having quiet reading time, writing time. Now I did also take advantage of my university had a writing lab where you could go and have you know, quiet, uninterrupted writing time, but there was resources available there. There was people behind the desk that could help you with, you know, how to document, how to cite something according to American Psychological Association, or how to appropriately quote something or paraphrase something. They had some resources available to you in this writing lab, but it was a good place to go sit and write because for me, I wasn't successful at home. And I learned that really quickly about myself. I had to be in another environment. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, for what they charge to go through these programs, wouldn't it behoove them to make sure that their students actually graduate and, you know, finish? You would think. I know. It it would behoove them. So I'm not sure why there isn't more structure, you know, built into that dissertation process. And it's, I think maybe part of it is, it is the highest level of educational attainment or educational level that you can attain. And they want to see, can you do it independently? Are you self-disciplined enough? You know, if we're going to grant you this degree, we want you to earn it. And this is part of earning it is getting through the woes of not having the structure maybe. And, and I don't know. I mean, that's, that is a good question for some of the, the head, you know, department heads in some of these PhD programs is that, is that part of it? They want to see how you do with lack of structure and, and having to be self-disciplined because Which that is, so is part of the process. Though, right. Because the people who struggle with um, needing more structure, and they struggle in situations where they don't have structure. They are most, our most creative brains. And so if mm-hmm. you're going to go out in the real world and make a huge difference, I would bank on those people versus the people who very easily with their linear brains can just throw together, you know, their dissertation. That's true. You're right. And that's why, you know, there are so many people out there that have their doctorates that are, they're book smart or they're research smart. They can quote yeah. research. They can quote authors. They can quote quote studies, but they're not outside the box thinkers. They're not creative. They maybe don't have a lot of social skills. They don't do great with a lot of interactions. They don't, (laughs) you know, problem solve for themselves as much as others. So, you know, you're right. I I don't know why they don't really- Unless it's just an income stream, Abby, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's another good point. Yeah. Make money. We don't have to go- Everybody won. So. It's true. And the longer we keep you in, the longer yep. you're paying. Because even when you have finished all of your coursework and you are in the dissertation process, and my dissertation, mind you, took two full years from getting the um, okay from the, the review mm-hmm. board to recruiting the participants to gathering the data to writing the dissertation. But I still had to pay every semester tuition because you're paying for basically access to your advisors, access to the library and the resources, access to the writing center. And so they're still getting tuition from me. So they got my money for six years at TWU. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I we probably have our answer. Right. <laughs> right that there. probably is a big part of it. Yep. Oh. Okay, Abby, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? You know, I think the key is to find those strategies that work for you. And it is trial and error because you can try, you know, 
putting alerts on your phone calendar like I do, but that may not work for you. You can try writing down things on sticky notes and sticking them all over your computer monitor and your bathroom mirror and your wall in the office. And you may disregard all of those sticky notes and what's in front of your eyes and you may not see it. So I really think it's through trial and error of different strategies you got to find what works for you. And it may have to be a combination of things. And I, I think it's also important to put systems in place that help m- kind of modify your environment, you know? So if you know that you work best early in the morning, you should wake up earlier and start your day earlier and even ask your boss if you can, you know, make your work hours from 7.30 to 4 instead of 9 to 5 or whatever it may be. You've got to find what works for you and use those strategies. And I really think, you know, there's ADHD coaches out there like Tracy and and many others that know so many great strategies to try that you don't, that some of us don't even ever think of on our own. So I think you need to also be willing to ask for help and help is out there. You know, there's consultants, there's coaches, there's life coaches, there's ADHD coaches, and they can help you come to those realizations of what types of systems need to be put in place for you to be successful and to work effectively and what strategies are going to work for you. So I think that's the key is, is finding those strategies that work for you and not just going with, Oh, I read about this planner online and it says it's geared towards helping ADHD brains get more organized. So this is the planner that I have to use and this is what's going to work. Because if it's not working for you, it's not working for you, regardless of what they say they stand behind. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, you are your own best expert, period. That's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, Abby, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Um, No, I don't think so. I think that you've asked some great questions, and I think I've, I've shared everything that I've of course, probably late at night when I'm in the middle of trying to go to sleep, I'll think of something that I wish I would have said to you. But right now, I can't think of anything. I think we've touched on everything. And I, I give props to anybody that is working through ADHD symptoms and managing those symptoms and getting successful careers. It is it is possible. I think I am a success story. And like I said, I didn't think I was capable of, of doing much. And now I've been in a successful career since I graduated. I am no longer wanting to go back to a restaurant. I'm no longer wanting to change careers every three or four years. So I found my calling and I found my niche and I found the strategies that work for me. And that has led to success and feeling good about myself. I no longer beat myself up. I feel good about myself every day now. You're a perfect example of our best purposes give meaning to our past. So it's no surprise that what you do today is to help people um, Mm -hmm. that struggled with, you know, either what you struggled with or something similar to what you struggled with. So you just want to make education better for them. Right. Absolutely. That's true. So is there anything that you're working on that you want to tell us about? Um, I'm not currently working on anything right now that I wanted to tell you guys about. However, I do work for Diagnostic Learning Services where we evaluate individuals of all ages for learning disabilities and ADHD. And Lori and I, we have a podcast called Let's Talk Learning Disabilities. So I do want to mention that that is a great resource for individuals, parents, spouses, anybody who feels like they need to learn more about a learning disability or feel like they suspect they may have a learning disability. We've had about 30, I believe 39 episodes now, ranging from all different various learning disability topics where you can learn more about specifics about different disabilities, or you can hear someone that has lived with that learning disability talk about their lived experiences. So let's talk learning disabilities. I would love for you guys to check us out and listen to us if you get a chance or want to learn more about learning disabilities and assessing for learning disabilities. 
Yeah. And I'll put a plug in for it. I think it's an excellent podcast. And when we were trying to figure out, is it dyslexia? Is it visual processing? You know, we knew it was ADHD with my son. That's Mm -hmm. the first place I went. I just started listening to all the podcast episodes that I thought might be relevant. And it was very, very helpful and very informative. So I I highly recommend it. Yeah. I'm so glad. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you, Abby. Thank you for spending time with us here today and sharing your story. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Abby Weinstein, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.